Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. We're going to be in our series, continuing in the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at chapter 13, and we finished it. This week, we're picking up in chapter 14, and we're going to go through the whole of chapter 14, because chapter 14 is a continuation of what happened in chapter 13. If you remember, just quickly, Paul and Barnabas, they were preaching the gospel in Antioch, Pisidia, and then the, and there's all these crowds, and the passage ends with the Jews becoming jealous of the crowds that they were drawing, and they resorted to persecution, and then we read of Paul and Barnabas fleeing, and that's where we pick up in Iconium, the town that they fled to. So if you have your Bibles, that's what we are going to pick picking up into Acts chapter 14. And what we see in these verses is the idea of courage and boldness and determination. And that's what we see by looking at Paul and Barnabas' response to situations before them. And we love stories of boldness. We love stories of courage. That's why, at least I can speak for myself, I watch war movies and, and stories of, of the war when, when these men who would, and women who would stand up and face tyranny in the face. And I just love those stories. And it's part of us as human DNA. And we see that uh, story after story in our verses today. And the supreme Christian examples are littered throughout the New Testament. And we see some today in Acts chapter 14 which shows us the consistently courageous attitude of the apostle and their loyalty to Christ through thick and thin, which is why the title of the sermon is Sticking to the Task Regardless, because that's what they were doing. They were called to preach the gospel, and they were going to do so regardless of their situations. And that's what we see the first missionaries do. They're bravely sticking to their purpose of preaching Christ despite the extreme temptations and persecutions. Their valiant and consistent attitude is a model for us today to live out, to have as we engage with our community. So as we walk through the text, that is my prayer, that God's word would be magnified to you today and that my words would be minimal because it's God's words that have life, that change us, that pierce our hearts and mine just puff us up. So with that in mind, before we hit the scripture, let's pray to that end. Father, I pray, Lord, that your name would be made great today. Father, that I would per se disappear, Lord, and you would be magnified, that eyes would be pointed to you and not to me or to anything else in this church but your holy name. Father, would your word do what it promised to do and not return void? Would it transform our minds? Would it pierce our hearts? Would it cut between bone and marrow, exposing the areas where we have yet to surrender to you, Lord. And may you bring about change by your Holy Spirit, not by any type of emotionalism or anything like that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first point I want you to pay attention today as we go into our first verses is this idea that we're challenged as believers to speak with boldness even when people begin to take sides in situations. So with that, let's pick up reading in Acts verse 1. 14 verse 1, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So what we see here in the first couple verses is something similar to what we observed last week in our message that Paul and Barnabas, they set up shop in a synagogue, they start preaching the gospel, and then many Jews and Gentiles, they hear the gospel, and they begin to believe many are coming to the Lord, but at the same time, they are met with fierce opposition from the the Jews, and, and they resort it to persecution. And what I see from that is we as believers, just like the apostles were, we are challenged to speak with boldness. And I think that begins with learning how to speak with boldness when God leads you on a mission. Because when you understand that God is commissioned you, which he has, all of you here who are sitting in these chairs who are in Christ have been commissioned by our resurrected Savior in Matthew 28 to go out into the world. So when you understand that, when you understand that you've been commissioned by God, who is much greater than you, and you're on this mission to serve him, you know you can speak with boldness because he has your back. He has backed you up. It's his message. He has sent you, and God, do you believe this FBC, is greater than any force on this earth. Do you believe that? Amen. So we see Paul and Barnabas, they walk into this missionary journey. They've been called and sent by God, and they've been commissioned as well by their local church. Pastor Dave talked about that in the first 13 verses of Acts 13. So they've been sent by this local church to go to the nations, specifically to parts of the world that have never heard the gospel proclaimed before. And they go forth with confidence and boldness in Christ. And they walk onto this mission field with all this confidence in their message. And guess what's the first thing they get hit with? Persecution. Resistance. It wasn't easy, even though they were confident. But did they quit? That's the question. No. They kept going on. They moved on boldly. We see this reoccurring pattern that happens over and over again in their missionary journey. You get these Jews who are just uh, 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 unbelieving Jews who are just there to, to uh, cause poison, dissension, and division, and they go everywhere they are stirring up trouble. And when I was reading on that and, and pondering that throughout the week, I started thinking, how many of us have people like that in our life? Where everywhere we go, they're just like a shadow and they're causing problems for us. They're stirring up arguments at all the family events and they're always just seeming to make your life frustrated. Or maybe there's some of them in our church. They're a constant distraction for you from your walk of Christ because they're either deterring you and pulling you into a group of complaining and and belittling and and pointing out all the problems, or they entice you to sin, to, to gossip about others, or maybe they're in your families and they oppose your Christian walk. You're the only Christian in your family, and you know, oh, this Thanksgiving, he's going to bring it up. He's going to cause an issue. But we... Being good Canadians, what do we do? Oh, yeah, that's okay. (laughs) You're so funny. We just kind of roll over and take it because that's what we're taught to be as good Canadians. 
But the imagery we see here used in our passage in Acts is that this is far beyond just someone causing problems. These Jews, the, the language they use is that they were poisoning the truth. They were putting, if you want to look at it this way, putting poison in the well water. And so this is beyond just someone being difficult. This was intentional, deliberate effort to poison and distort the purity of the gospel. And that happens far too often in churches. And when this happens, because it can happen in this church, and it has likely happened in this church, and it will happen likely in this church, when someone comes in and they begin to poison the well here at FBC, we are called to stand up and speak boldly in those moments. When untrue doctrines are being taught in our, between our walls, in our life groups, within our community, uh, we are called to stand up and take action to correct with the word of God because these subtle sins begin to rule the roost. They begin to take over. It's poison. It begins to kill. So here's the challenge for you and me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this pure picture of God's love that he has come, that he has come to have relationship with mankind. He actually desired to have relationship with mankind since the garden, and then sin entered the world, and then God made a way through Jesus Christ, the only one who was able to pay this perfect price, and he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, absorbing all the wrath of God on our behalf and forgiving us of all our sin, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he lives ever to make intercession for you and I. This is the beautiful uh, Cole's notes of the gospel. And this beautiful picture that gives us peace and hope must be guarded. It must be protected. Because what we've seen in previous chapters in Acts and what we will continue to see as we walk through this book over the next couple months is that there's these Jews who come in and begin with a continual effort to cause an ad to the gospel, to cause division, to poison it, to add action in it, to add works to it. And all of a sudden, this pure, true message, if not careful, can become stained. And we have men and women like that who come into our churches, who are wolves in sheep clothing, who are intentionally poisoning the well. And you and I are commanded on a mission by God to be everyday missionaries in our community and to the world. And by doing that, we've got to speak God's truth and do so boldly and protect, protect the purity of the gospel. That's not just my job as, as your pastor. It's not just the job of the elders, although that is our job description. But it's also your job as Christians to protect the purity of God's message. Because it can happen so easily. It starts with small compromises. And when you compromise in the small, you will compromise in the large. It will end up with you believing that this pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus is boiled down to Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus works. It's Jesus plus whatever I can do. But that's an impure gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus Christ. That's actually disastrous, horrible news. And it will damn souls to hell. It's so subtle that it will sound right. And that's what true discernment is. We, th we like to think that discernment is knowing right from wrong. That's too simple. Everyone can know right from wrong. What true godly discernment is, is knowing right from almost right. It almost is there. It sounds so good. It sounds so right. But it's not the gospel. It's actually horrible news. And we 
by being transformed by the word of God. If we're not being transformed by the word of God, then our minds will be transformed by this world. We'll be drawn in by the social liturgies. We'll be told what to think. We'll begin to impose our thoughts upon scriptures. And we will land somewhere that sounds so close, but yet it's so far from the truth. Know your word. Be in your word. Let your mind be transformed by God's word. So literally here, what we read in verse 4 is that people have begun to take sides. Some of them were beginning to take the poisonous side. They were buying into what was being taught by the Jews. And others were taking the apostles' sides. And you could just see it. They're arguing, no, you have to be circumcised. No, you don't. You don't have to be circumcised anymore. you got to do this to be saved. No, you don't. You just have to believe in Jesus. And in the midst of all that confusion and people taking sides, what do we see Paul and Barnabas do? We see them to continuing to speak boldly. They don't just say, whoa, this has gotten out of hand. I'm just going to back out and see what happens. No, they stay there and they begin to proclaim the truth boldly because the reality is, is that the truth can, although truth normally does divide, normally sheep from wolves, the truth also can bind together what has been divided. They were making a continual effort to bring it back. No, you guys are missing the point. And they were preaching God's word knowing that he would do the work. But I just want to give a quick note of caution before we go any further. Speaking boldly for the word of God does not give you permission to be a jerk. A lot of us, we confuse this idea of strong language, being rough with people, being loud, raised voices with being bold and zealful for the Lord. And all you are is a scared chihuahua trying to make yourself look a little more fierce. And it's pathetic. That's not what boldness is. Being bold means to hold to the truth without compromise, even if it causes division, even if it causes personal attack or loss of relationship. Holding to biblical truth as we advance in this weird world will only bring more of that, but may we never be known as those guys who are just on a crusade, slashing off ears with the sword of the word and having Christ have to come pick back up and heal what we've just slashed off at his zeal. Because we think that's being bold for God. It's, we need to knock it off. So, but verse, four, or verse 3 to me is the key verse in all these six verses. Let me read it again. Verse 3 says, So they started, uh, so, sorry, so they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. And then, if you're into this, underline this next part who testified to the message of his grace. I want you to pay attention to that. Because God sent these two individuals as missionaries. God has empowered them as their mouthpiece. But what that means is that it was God's message being spoken through them. That he, they were just their mouthpiece. We are just his mouthpiece. We are just his hands. We are just his feet. But without him blessing that, without him testifying to that message, it's pointless. And that's what we see happening here is that God is testifying to their message and then he empowers them with signs and wonders. And what I, what, I, what I see is that God will empower us as well to speak boldly. He will give us words to say in conversations. He will give us phrases to use in Scripture to come back to our minds as we engage our world boldly with the gospel. And that's a miracle. I think we tend to think of miracles as somebody getting out of a wheelchair or a paralytic man walking, as we'll see in just a couple verses. 
But I think we are undermining the fact that, that any time God uses you or I as imperfect vessels who sin constantly, who spit in his face and commit cosmic treason, he says, I'm going to use you as a broken vessel to preach my pure, unadulterated gospel. That's a miracle. Like, we shouldn't undermine that. Anytime God uses you to share his word, just stick back for a second and say, whoa, God is doing something miraculous here. And you may be sitting here during this message and think, well, Aaron, I'm just not wired to be bold. I'm, I'm probably more wired to be, you know, a quiet demeanor, a sensitive demeanor. Uh, and my, my only pushback on that would be humbly and respectfully is that boldness in the biblical sense, is not a personality trait. It's not something, it's not saying you need to be wired this way. Actually, boldness is this evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Boldness is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of some threat. History is littered with uh, insecure people being empowered by God and standing boldly for His Word. Just one out of the Bible is Moses, right? He didn't even want to go. But he stood boldly before Pharaoh because he was empowered by the Spirit of God. And so are we. We are empowered by the Spirit of God to push back, to stand boldly for his truth. When everything in this world is trying to claim absolute truth, we must stand and proclaim that the only truth is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he, only through him, you have salvation. Not through Allah, not through Buddha, not through any other false god on this planet. Only through Jesus. And when others may doubt, we must stand firm and speak with boldness. And we, and we get this privilege to stand for the truth. As we see Paul and Barnabas, they stood for the truth. This led people who were opposed to their teaching to plot and to stone Paul. So they moved on. And I thought that was really interesting. I think some of us have this uh, martyr complex where we're like, no, we just got to stay and be abused as much as we can. But what we see here is that they were planning to stone him. They didn't say, well, I'm just going to stay and see what God does. No, they move on. They go. They go on out, and, and, and then they don't, they don't stop, though. They don't say, well, this is getting way too hard. Okay, we've almost died a couple times now. Maybe we should call it quits and go back home. No, they just move on to the next place and begin setting up shop, preaching the gospel, because verse 7 shows us that they have this singular vision. It possessed them. They knew what God has called them to do, and nothing was going to stop me, stop them, which brings me to the next point, which is we're called to stand for truth when it may not be received. Let's continue reading. Verse 8 says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright! On your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. 
And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. There's a lot going on there. So let's break it down. In verse 8 to 15, Luke hones in on the specific miracle at Lystra, which causes an uproar with the people. A man was born with paralysis, verse 8, and the wording that Luke uses here and the subsequent healing that follows uh, takes us back to the similar healing, if you might remember, from Acts chapter 3, when Peter, the apostle, healed another paralyzed man. And the response to Peter's healing of his paralyzed man in Acts 3 differs greatly from the response in Acts chapter 4. And I highlight that because in Peter's case, who were his audiences primarily? They were Jews. It was a Jewish nation. And their minds were orientated a certain direction. They would point everything to Yahweh. But Paul, in Paul's case, however, he performs this miracle in front of a Gentile audience. And the crowd fails to understand that what Paul is doing, and they, they think they, they begin to mix up that, the, the, the message with the messenger, and they think that Paul now is some God. They, they think everything has to do with Paul rather than God, when a Jew would likely go, well, no, clearly Paul is not a God because we are monotheistic. We only believe in one God. So what's going on here? But these Gentiles are going, hey, this is clearly a God. And it causes a lot of confusion. And what we see Paul and Barnabas do in that confusion is express God's love to those who are confused. The people who just witnessed the miracle are rightly confused. And we have to remember that as, as Paul goes further and further into the ends of the earth and further away from the nucleus of Jerusalem and into the European continent, where it's primarily run by Romans and has Greek mythology at the forefront of their mind, we begin to see all that worldview begin to bubble up here to the surface. And some of you might have studied Greek mythology in high school, so these names might sound familiar to you, like Zeus and Hermes, or Hermes, however you pronounce it. And they, they seem kind of familiar, but that's what's, interest, what's interesting is when we read about the Lyconian people, the legends of Lyconia, is what we learn is they believed in their past history that these two gods, Zeus and Hermes, came down in the flesh. They were knocking on all the doors looking for a meal, and nobody was inviting them in. They kept turning away except for this lowly couple who took them in. They fed them a feast. They were blessed, and then they became priest and priestess of Zeus, which we still see that temple message uh, are mentioned here in Acts 14. So when we come to Acts 14, we got to picture this crowd. They have these legends in their mind. And now they see Paul and Barnabas do something miraculous, and they go immediately, oh, man, Zeus is back. Hermes is back. We're not going to miss this. They immediately go to sacrificing to them. And you can almost read it in their mentality. We made this mistake once before. We will not make this mistake again. We want to be blessed by the gods so let us make nothing's going to stop us from making sacrifices and Paul and Barnabas response once they kind of figured out what was going on they they tore their clothing 
which was a common Jewish practice when they would see blasphemy. Because they didn't want to receive the worship because they knew that they were pointing everything to God, not to themselves. So they tore their clothes. Not us, we're just men. And what we see Paul do is what Paul does best. He stands up in the midst of confusion and he preaches a sermon and he does so boldly. I call it a little mini sermon that has three little points. The first point is he called his listeners to turn from vain things to a living God. He exercises love to them by saying, listen, I care for you so much that I can't let you continue following this mistaken road and worldview that you're on. Let me express to you the truth of who God is. And Paul begins to tell some things about God. And the first thing he touches on is that he's a living God. He's alive. He's not some idol who just sits on your shelf who's dumb, deaf, and mute. Rather, he's alive and he's relational. He's not just alive, but he wants a relationship, and that matters. And Paul is telling the crowd to turn from these false idols who are dead and made up and turn to a living God. Stop worshiping the, tr- the twigs and the trees and the plants and the planets, but turn to a living God. Paul is addressing the vain nature that plagues all of humans. We long for idols. You may think that these people are funny for worshiping nature and all these other things, But I want you to just take a moment and look at your own life. How often does money rule your life? How often does sex become your God? How often does pleasure dictate what you do? How often does status and appearance dictate your life? These are all idols. These are all vain gods in our lives. And Paul is telling us here today to turn from those and turn to a living God. He is the God. He is the creator, which is the second point that Paul points his listeners to. Paul begins to strip the pagan gods of their supposed power and authority, stating that in past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with foods and gladness, verse 16 to 17. And he shows these listeners that the world is not the playground of Zeus or Aphrodite or Hades or Apollo. That creation rather submits to the sovereign rule of an all-powerful God who spoke all things into existence, verse 17. He's saying that God made the heavens. God made the earth. He made the sea and everything that's in them. And what he's doing is cutting right to the heart of Greek mythology and what they would believe. He's going right to the core of their foundation of their worldview. And he's helping them see, hey, what you've been taught, what you've always believed isn't true. This is how we often have to talk with unbelievers in our world. They're serving the God of this age. They're serving the devil, and they're directed by the social liturgies of the day, and we need to, at times, to begin to deconstruct those, to say it's not about that, and then begin to build them back up on that God is alive, that he's the creator, and then point them to the fact, like Paul does, that he's also the sustainer and the provider. So Paul, we see him dismantle the pagan worldview and offer a theological corrective. He dismisses their pagan worship. He sends the priest of Zeus away. He deflects their attempt to worship him and honor him as a god. And he points them to the true God who who created everything and who has continued to provide 
for them through rain and through bountiful harvest. This is called common grace. And the pagan worldview sought to offer sacrifices to the gods so that the rains would come, that their fruits would grow, that their vegetables would be healthy. And Paul's saying, you're wasting your time because the living God I just told you about has already done those things for you despite your uh, uh, inconsistency and your idolatrous sacrifices. But Paul's not just saying, hey, just add another God to your spectrum. No, he's saying you can come and know this God personally. That you can forsake vanity and revel in the resplendent riches of God and his glory. He's pointing them to the fact that God is the ultimate sustainer and provider. That God is the source of hope. He's, He's our source of strength. That he's a jealous God that he gets the credit, that he doesn't want you to give your dues to some fake God who claims to live up the mountain that you've never seen. He wants you to have a relationship with you. He wants to have all of you. And the same is here for you today, FBC. Stop running to other sources that promise so much joy but deliver nothing. Stop running to other small g gods in your life that dictate and rule your heart and turn to God who is alive who is living, and who is an inexhaustible fountain of joy that will never run dry. Turn to the living God. And then with that in mind, turning to God, we see in verse 18 to about 20 this idea of the cost of discipleship. We see that they try to clearly communicate the truth. They try to turn people away from making sacrifices from them, and they scarcely do so. And then verse 19 shatters the scene when Paul goes from denying being a god to being dragged out of the city and stoned almost to death. Indeed, here Luke says that the Jews won the crowd over. They drank the poison, and they were one oval which, uh, which exposed the feckleness of the Gentiles' hearts. And the Jews from the previous cities, from Antioch, Pisidia, and Iconium, they weren't just satisfied with Paul and them leaving. They're like, no, we're going to get this guy, and we're going to kill him. And they show up on the scene. And they're like, let's kill this guy. He did the same thing in our town. And they drag him out. They stone him in hopes to kill him in the most humiliating way by taking him out of the city, throwing rocks at him, and then leaving his body for the birds and dogs to feast on. But then in verse 20, we see a group of his disciples gather around him. And you got to think about this. Paul is new in this town. These are likely new disciples. They just put their faith in Jesus, and now they're seeing with their eyes the cost of following this Savior. That you might get a rock bashed into your head. They're not sitting in the church going, well, it's too warm in here today. Well, the music is not that great today. Well, the paint color on the walls are not that good. Well, the, this is not that good. Well, that is not too good. No, they're watching the one who led them to the Savior bleed out. And they say, I'm still going to follow this Jesus. They surround him. He stands up. And we as followers of Christ should expect this as well, that Christ's love would be rejected by us and that we would face persecution. Following Christ as a faithful witness comes at a great cost. Most of you sitting here tonight, today, will not face a physical beating as you proclaim the gospel. But you may, however, as you boldly go proclaim this out and live this out in your life, receive a psychological stoning as the culture rejects you and dismisses your religious convictions as an antiquated system of beliefs which clings to an age long ago surpassed by the glory of modernity. You're just holding on to an old dusty rule book. 
And Paul says, however, that it's through these trials, it's through these physical beatings, through these psychological stonings, that we enter the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 4, he encourages the church saying that these light momentary afflictions are what are preparing you for the eternal weight of glory, far beyond comparison. They will not count. They won't even remember them. They'll melt away in the presence of God. So as we faithfully serve Jesus, suffering will come. It's promised, but we must endure. For on the other side of tribulation is the sweet embrace of our Savior. He's there. He doesn't leave you. You and I, as we aim to be the best expressions we can of hope and do our best to speak the gospel boldly at home, in our workplace, in our community, or wherever we might go, we have to know and expect that some will just plain out reject God's love. They will. Some hearts are just still too hardened. Some eyes are just still too blind. And a blind, hard-hearted person often rejects the gospel, and they do so violently. And then thirdly, we see this idea, or I like to call a challenge, that we spread hope as we spend time with God's people. Acts 21 to 27 says, oh, I lost my spot there. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconia, into Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed the elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed back through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And then they arrived and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples there. So there are three really quick things I think are noteworthy for us to, to know as we live this idea out of spreading hope as we spend time with God's people. And the first one is a challenge to remain faithful in a non-Christian world. We see this in verse 21 to 22. What did Paul and Barnabas do? They went back through the towns that we read about in chapter 13 that they were commissioned to go to, and they go back through these towns that have never heard the gospel that they just proclaimed a couple years ago, and they're saying, yes, yes, you are saved. God is loving you. And now they're following back up. They're coming back through to check on them. And to me, that's encouraging. Because when we follow up and when we follow through with people, it's an expression. It's a simple expression that I actually care about you. That you're not just some checkbox on my Christian to-do list. Well, i got to tell my neighbor about Jesus. No, when you follow back up with them, it shows an expression that you actually care. It's an encouragement to people. And that is a fundamental step as we make disciples to follow up. We tend to just share the gospel. We throw some seed and run <laughs> because we're scared. Right? We're like, ah, here, Jesus loves you. And we, we run and hide and we hope that God does the rest of it. We can't expect salvation to come through one conversation. It might. I've seen it happen. 
But we can't just expect it to come through that. Normally it comes through a sequence of conversations of that you're doing life together and you're showing them the gospel. You're living out the gospel in front of them. And Paul and Barnabas emphasized this idea of disciple making when they followed back up with people, when they followed through with people, and when they stayed connected with people. And I often said it this way. If you want to disciple someone, to help disciple someone, it doesn't mean that you have to change anything about your life if you're serving Christ. All you have to do is willingly take someone along for the ride, to have them come in, to view you live out your faith. And one really simple way of doing that, how many of you eat dinner every day? All of you do, right? Why not use that hour or so time to invite a neighbor over? Have them over for dinner. Have a conversation. Live out your faith in front of them. You don't have to go, okay, now that dinner's over, I got to talk to you about the gospel, bait and switch. No, just be a Christian. Just live out your faith in front of them. And watch what happens as you grow in relationship with your community. It's going to be awkward. You know, you might be sitting there cutting your meat a little too long because you don't know what to say. But it will get better. It will get easy as you become a source of encouragement for them. And we can encourage them just as Paul encouraged them. He encouraged them. That he told the, the disciples who were there, don't lose heart even when you experience hardships, paraphrased. And, 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 and where did he just come from? Paul just came from getting stoned. And I'm not talking about marijuana. He just came from getting his rocks beat at him, thrown at him, almost dying. And he's saying, hey, don't lose heart. Continue going on. That's how we enter the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes our experiences are connection points in our evangelism. You might be going through something hard and you might be thinking, well, this is pointless. Why am I going through this, Lord? One, it's working together a peculiar glory for you in eternity, but also the Lord can use it as a connection point as you reach out to a hurting world. You're not the only one who's experienced pain in this life. So Paul challenges us to remain faithful. And I just believe as we live this out every day in Drumheller, in this valley, which by the way, has a growing population of post-Christian people, people who are not affiliated with churches, people who don't believe in God, and people who actually have never heard the name of Jesus before. I met with someone who didn't even know Jesus' name or that there was even numbers in the Bible. Like not the book, like numbers. Like they've never seen a Bible before. Here in Drumheller, it's growing and we are called, and I'm convinced now more than ever, that as we reach out and build and send and make disciples, that we do this by genuinely caring for our community, uh, going into our community, showing love to our community, maybe even meeting physical needs of our community, and being faithful and encouraging and also following back up with our community. Hey, I had, that, I had a conversation with you a couple weeks ago. How are you doing? Hey, how's your, how's your sister doing? How's your brother doing? How's your daughter doing? Care about them. We have a major mission field in front of us, and you are the missionaries, you sitting in this room. The second thing we see in verse 23 to 24 is that leadership should be prayed for. And I added in this selfishly because I desperately need your prayers. The elders desperately need your prayers. We covet them. We as a church, we need to be praying for each other because prayer is the lifeline of the church. And if prayer dries up, guess what? So does the church. What I commit to is I walk through the members in adherence list, the active attenders list every month, and I pray for each and every one of you by name 
every one of you by name. I don't even know if you have needs or not, but I'm walking through that list, praying for you. And I know some of you are praying for me and the other elders, and we appreciate that, and I encourage you to continue on, to pray that we would be a church that would continue to reach our community, to build you up, and to send you out as we make disciples, faithful disciples in this valley, which will in turn take the gospel to the nations. And lastly, what we see is that uh, Paul and Barnabas returning to the Antioch, which they were sent from in Syria, and they give a report on the faithfulness and provision of God. They're reporting all the good things that God has done, and they're celebrating because here's the truth, a fundamental truth of life that never changes. You celebrate what you believe in. You celebrate what's important to you. You make time for it. You make money for it. Because what's important to us, we want to invest into. Because we celebrate what matters. And here we have an opportunity to learn from Paul and Barnabas. I don't just jazz you up to get excited that some people are joining our alphas who are not Christian or people are getting baptized and following Christ or getting saved. I'm not getting you excited for no reason. I'm following this principle we see here that they're celebrating what God is doing. Paul and Barnabas bring the whole church together and they are joyful that the door has been opened, that the gospel is advancing, that Gentiles are now a part of the faith family. The church is exploding at the seams. They're excited and they celebrate it. And we too can be excited and celebrate what God is doing here. I don't know if you've noticed, but some weeks, most weeks out of not, it's hard to find a seed in this church. We're growing, both numerically and spiritually. God is blessing FBC. We have three people getting baptized. We have unbelievers in our alpha. We're constantly going into our community and ramping that up as we go forward. And we need to get excited about that church. Are you excited about that? Because we can stay the same and not do anything and get stagnant. Or we can continue to go forward and proclaim the gospel with our lives and watch what God does here. Because he is going to do something great. Wouldn't it be amazing, this is my dream, that we just begin filling that baptism tank week after week as we see new believers come to faith. Amen? Would you pray to that end with me? Father, I thank you, Lord, as the worship team comes. I thank you for these kids, first and foremost, how amazing they were during this time. God, would you just bless them. But God, would you use us as a church as we're growing? We don't want to take advantage of that. We don't want to become prideful in that. We don't want to look as David did to the numbers and miss the point. But Father, would you use us as this great gathering of men and women and children, God, as examples in our homes and our schools and our community of what it means to hold to the truth of Jesus Christ and would we do so boldly? Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us anew, that it would give us strength, that it would give us divine appointments in our homes and in our workplaces and in our grocery stores. Father, that people hurting, lost, and broken would be attracted to the message that we speak. Father, I thank you, Lord, that I, ha I stand before such faithful men and women. Father, would you bless them as you use them. In Jesus' name, amen.